Welcome to the Athletic Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Evans, strength and conditioning coach and owner of Evans Performance. This is a podcast tailored for athletes, coaches, and parents interested in every facet of athletic development. Join me and guests from around the world as we dive into game-changing tools and expert insights covering strength training, performance enhancement, and long-term athletic development strategies. Uncover the keys to elevate your athletic potential, drawing from trusted resources to safely and effectively navigate your training and build your athletic edge. Welcome back to the podcast. On today's episode, I'm very happy to be joined by one of my good friends and mentors, Elena Luciani. Welcome, Elena. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat today. Yeah, me too. And quickly, I just want to put out three things that I want people to get from this episode. So the first is the importance of strength and conditioning in a, a high school setting and moving and transitioning into the collegiate world. I mean, why it's so important to kind of set that base even before the kids get to college. Two, why we don't really need to overcomplicate some of the training principles, stick it to the basics of something I know you and I are both big on, and especially when we're working with athletes and youth athletes. And three, I thought it'd be cool to just dive into a little bit at the end, if we have time, what goes into athlete programming. Obviously, a lot of the time, no one really knows what we do on the back end of things. It's more, all right, this is my lift for today, and the athletes go out and do it. But I think it's important for them to see that side of what goes in, you know, what goes through our head and how we kind of plan out sessions and their progressions and periodization and all that fun stuff that I'm sure we'll get into. But before we do any of that, it'd be a good time for you to just introduce yourself and let the people know who you are. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and have this conversation. So I am similar to you, a strength and conditioning coach, educator, and founder of Training to Excel. So Training to Excel is a bit of a hybrid business, both in person and online, where I facilitate programming and coaching for both athletes in sport and athletes in life. And then I also have a sector, which is where we were introduced, which is the School of Training to Excel, where I run education and continuing education for other strength conditioning coaches, personal trainers, and movement practitioners. I'm really passionate about you know highlighting the simple things in strength and conditioning and how important they are and how much they're at the forefront of what we do. And I'm sure we'll get into how, you know, trends in sports science and things have changed over the past couple of years. But like the basics are the basics for a reason. So that's something that I really like to highlight. But I was a student athlete. I've been an athlete all my life. And I was fortunate enough to play four years of basketball in a year of lacrosse at Wilfrid Laurier University. So hopefully there are some Golden Hawks listening along. And I was fortunate enough to actually have a very unique opportunity in starting the strength conditioning program after I graduated. So I did my Bachelor of Arts in Kinesiology. And then long story short, had this really wild opportunity to put together a business plan and a proposal to build what I saw as the foundation of the strength and conditioning program for our varsity athletes and for that program. So I worked as a head strength coach at Laurier for 13 varsity teams for two years. My first lesson I'd love to share is please don't ever commit to a job where you are working with 500 student athletes by yourself. It is not sustainable. <laughs> and I'm sure I'll, I'll share more about that experience as we go. But you know what? It actually pushed me to pursue my master's and go back to school. So I did my master's in sports science and recreation with a distinction in coaching at Ohio University. I got to work with several of our varsity teams there, which was a really, really cool opportunity to be able to have experienced the Canadian university sport environment and also the NCAA sport environment. They're very different. I always say you can't compare the two, but it was really cool to be able to get the perspective of both. And then I came home and I was applying to every job under the sun. And Liam, I know you know that it's like, what a world out there applying to collegiate strength and conditioning jobs. But I landed at another university here in Toronto at York University. And I should mention that I actually started training to Excel back when I was working at Laurier. And I used it as a platform to share my journey as a young female strength conditioning coach. I was writing programs for graduating athletes. I was creating like ebooks, just kind of fun things, using it as a bit of a creative outlet. And it was a couple of days before I started at York University, I actually very suddenly lost my dad. And I always share this because it is a massive part of my journey. And it's a massive part of training to excel. My dad was a longtime educator and coach, and he has really influenced so much of what I do in training to excel that I think it's really important that I always give them props and, you know, share that a lot of what I do is, you know, in hopes of carrying on his legacy. So 
I ended up working that year at York University, but was in a position where there was a lot of quiet time, I should say, in the schedule. And I remember sitting in the empty weight room one day, and I had sat there for about four hours at that point, And I just said out loud, I'm capable of more than this. And so I decided to just put a little bit more effort into growing training to excel. I always knew I wanted to do it full time at some point, but I kind of said, you know, when I have more experience, when I'm 40, when I'm this, and when a massive life event happens, like losing a very special loved one, it really forces you to reflect on how you're spending your time. And so I decided to give myself a chance and I thought I'll give myself a year and I'll see what happens after a year. And I'm happy to say that that was April of 2018. And we're now February of 2024. So hopefully I'm doing something right. <laughs> and that's allowed me to you know, continue operating training to excel full time. But here we are. That's amazing. And so even before we get into some of the coaching and training side of things, I want to quickly rewind. I, as you know, primarily working with a lot of high school and youth athletes, have a lot of athletes that are looking right now at that transition. One, deciding if they do want to play sports in college. And two deciding between either because a lot of Bermudians where I'm, I'm from end up either in Canada and some US go to the US. So what as an athlete for you, one, what made you decide that, you know, that was the right step for you to play a collegiate sport? And two, from your time working in the US in the NCAA and in playing in Canada, what were the biggest differences? Ooh, that's an excellent question. So I'll say right off the bat, when I was younger, when I started playing sports, I think I've just always been a high achiever. And I knew, like, I remember being six years old saying, I'm going to play pro soccer at the time. It was soccer was the first sport I tried. And when I fell in love with basketball, I knew pretty quickly that I'm like, I want to take this as far as I can. And I think a big influence on that was the fact that I grew up in a family of athletes. So both my brothers played football in university. Both my cousins played football in university. Everyone in my family has played a sport. And I think coming behind two older brothers, I was very adamant on doing what they did and getting to the next level and always challenging myself to be better. And I will say being a varsity athlete is work. You are essentially tackling a full-time job on top of being a full-time student. It is no joke. Regardless of whether you go to school in Canada or in the US, you are a student athlete. So school does come first. But being a student athlete is such a privilege. And like I said, it's not for everyone. Not everyone can manage their time to be able to do that. So I think knowing that I wanted to be challenged, I was just the type of person that I was like, I never wanted anything to be handed to me on a silver platter. I always wanted to feel like I earned something. So I think that was also part of it. In seeing both the US and Canada, I think both are very high caliber areas to compete in sport. What I will say about the NCAA is I do think that there are a lot more resources in US schools. I don't entirely know why that is. I can't really answer that. But it will be a slightly different experience whether you go to a Canadian school or a US school. And like I said in my intro there, it's hard to compare the two just because when departments have a lot of money, they can support their student athletes in different ways. And there's some Canadian schools that do a really excellent job of it. And there's some that are still trying to figure it out. So I just think like history wise, Canadian schools aren't quite there, mm -hmm. but hopefully we'll start to see the playing field level out a little bit. Yeah. And I think we had talked about it before, but you had done some strength and conditioning work prior to going to university, correct? Yeah. So I, I mean, for my own strength conditioning journey, yeah. when I got really serious with basketball in high school, it was my brothers that kind of encouraged me to put in some work off the court. And I think what was really cool was I started to see, and I think this is going to be a transition into some of the things we're speaking about. But when I was in high school, I was kind of following their lead. And what I thought was really cool was I was putting in work off the court, but it was really positively benefiting me on the court. And I just think when I was a young athlete, I was like, oh, if I want to be a good basketball player, I just have to put up a lot of shots and I have to work on my ball handling, period. There's nothing else. Like, sure, I can run, but nothing else. And so when I started paying attention to the other stuff, like what I was eating and incorporating strength training, I was like, wow, I feel so much stronger on the court. I'm able to last the entire game. I'm able to like battle for rebounds. You know, 
it's hard to take the ball off me because I'm strong and I'm stable. And so it was really cool to kind of see those things connect. And I've always been really interested in the human body. And then moving into university, I worked at several training facilities. So that's where I got my first taste of working with high-performance athletes. And that was when the switch really flipped for me. And I was like, I love this. Like I've experienced it. I've experienced the benefit of it. And now I want to help support other people in their journey as well. Yeah. And it's, I was almost on the flip side of that where I did some gym work in high school, but it really wasn't anything structured. It wasn't a proper SSC program fully laid out and whatnot. So when I did get to, I played collegiately in the States. And when I got to the weight room, honestly, (laughs) I had no idea what I was doing. And I never wanted one of my things. I never want any of my athletes to have that uh, transitioning to college, whether you're playing sports or not is a tough time. So I wanted to be able to take that off their plate. So they didn't have to worry at least about not knowing what to do as soon as they got to the gym. So on your end, and you can talk both as an athlete and as a coach, how did that transition period look for you or for your athletes coming in? Could you tell some of the ones that had done strength and conditioning prior to coming to college or some that were brand new? And obviously that affects how we train them. And obviously we can get more into that as well. Yeah, I think to be honest, I, I think strength training now or strength and conditioning is more accessible at a younger age, I would say, in comparison to maybe when we went to school. Like I said, I kind of followed the lead of my brothers who were, you know, three and five years older than me. So they were kind of ahead of things and and I followed their lead. But now we're seeing more programming for youth athletes, whether they're in middle school or in high school. From a coaching standpoint, it was always so awesome to get rookie athletes that knew how to move. Like that, it just made things more fun because it was easier to get them involved in the team and in the programming. And of course, like there's a lot of athletes that get to the next level without taking those extra steps. And it's once they're at that next level that they recognize, okay, now I need to add the strength conditioning. Now I need to sleep more. Now I need to drink water, things like that. But just the nature of certain sports, some athletes are super skilled and they don't really have to worry about the other stuff. But it's a bit of a rude awakening when you get to that next level, whether it's collegiate or semi-pro or whatever it might be. So it is so, so helpful to have someone at a younger age, teach them proper mechanics and start to build that foundation. And as a collegiate strength coach, it was always so refreshing to have young first-year athletes come in and already be very well-versed in in our foundational movement patterns. And there was still, obviously, there was still a bit of a learning curve, but it was always really cool to see some young athletes come in and already feel very comfortable in the weight room. The other side of that too is I've worked with a lot of different sports. So there are certain sports that I'm more heavily involved with, but I think the most interesting part of my job working at the collegiate level and working with so many different teams is the difference in sport culture. Because I know for, I'll say for basketball and what I know about soccer from the strength and conditioning side of things, I feel like, and I'm going to say we, when we were younger, it was like we got touches on the ball, we put up shots. We did the skill stuff. That was working hard. That's what it meant to train in the quote unquote off season versus sports like football and hockey, perhaps because there's a more physical component to it. They're introduced to what's referred to as dry land training or, you know, the off field or off ice training a little bit earlier. So a lot of the training facilities I worked at when I worked with a lot of youth athletes, they were playing hockey or football. Versus I wasn't seen as many in different sports because I don't think the sport culture taught them that at a younger age. I'm not sure if that's making sense, but it's just something that I noticed. And it definitely played a role in how I educated on strength and conditioning to certain teams. So when I was working with basketball and when I was working with soccer, I was more so educating on keeping them in trying to prevent any injuries or trying to keep them as resilient and as healthy as possible so they could play a full game no problem versus with football my conversations were like let's get you bigger faster stronger because that was what was important to them and as a strength and conditioning coach performance and injury prevention i say that lightly Because there's certain things we can't prevent, but injury resilience, let's say, and performance for me are both tied at number one. One doesn't trump the other because you can't perform well if you're injured and you're not performing at your best if you have all these ailments. But when educating certain athletes of certain sports, I would maybe shift the way I educated 
to kind of speak their language a little bit more. And I think that's where the coaching side of what we do and communication side really does come in. Because yeah, you can't train a group of football, American football or Canadian football athletes the same as you can, you know, other other sports. They, like you said, they just don't have that training culture. And it hasn't been around in the sport as long. Obviously, now, and I would say 95% of sports, it's becoming, you know, this is something we know we have to do no matter what it is. But yeah, previously, a lot of athletes don't have that prior background. So just getting that message across to them, because again, at the end of the day, I know the quote that you like is care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? So if we really want to get max intent out of them, they have to know where we're coming from. And part of us is educating them why we're doing that, right? And let's be real. When you're working with a new group, you do have to win them over a little bit, right? And that's something as a young female, especially, that's something that, let's be real, I have to work harder at that. I do in a lot of different environments. So it's important that the athletes understand that I know what they need and how to support them. So I think, you know, I'm big on the communication piece. I'm really big on the connection piece because I think that's how we get adherence. When we get adherence to a plan that we've put in place, that's when we can help them fulfill their goals. And it's hard to do that if there's no trust and there's no connection because they're like, who's Elena? Like, what's she going to teach me? Right. She doesn't know soccer. But then once you take time to kind of build that rapport and also speak to them in a way that things click for them, I think that's, uh, that is hugely beneficial. And I think what goes into also helping build that rapport is also them knowing that you've done X, Y, and Z to get to where you are today. And that's, and we can kind of segue into that conversation where, you know, (laughs) having all these accreditations and qualifications doesn't necessarily make you a good coach, but it gives you that foundation to then go on to learn everything else. And I think that's really important, whether it's your athletes or if it's youth athletes, parents knowing this, just having those qualifications and people with the right qualifications in those areas. I think that really does build, especially with your athletes, because they're like, all right, Elena has worked in this sector, has done this, has her master's, has that accreditation, all that sort of thing. And unfortunately, on we're battling things on you know social media where maybe there's a lot of information being put out in the world, but who are you getting that information from kind of matters. So maybe you could touch on the importance of this and how, especially youth athletes that maybe are exposed to all of this, how they can kind of filter that information. Oh, we are opening up this can of worms, which I Get think it to it early. I love having these conversations because I think it's going to take individuals that have put in the time to mm-hmm. educate themselves over and over and over again, over many years, it's going to take us continuing to have these conversations to help clear up some things that perhaps are shared on social media. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to narrow it down. But if I were to say one thing, I think it's a bit of a red flag. Not a bit. I think it's a red flag when people speak in absolutes when it comes to strength and conditioning. Because there is so much research out there that will support one claim. And you can find just as much research on the other end of the spectrum to support the opposite. And so I think it's really important that we take ownership of the fact that there's a lot of gray area in our field. And my favorite answer to questions is, it depends. I'm not saying that as a cop-out. I'm not saying that because I'm being lazy. There's just so many variables that come into play. So it's hard to answer a lot of questions with absolute statements and saying, this is the only way you can squat. This is the only way you should program. This is the only type of program you should be following. This is the only thing you should be doing. I think that's a red flag. I think it's different when people say, this is what's worked for me or in my experience, because then they're providing a little bit of context to what they're saying. Hey, this is what I've done in the past and it's worked really well for me, but you know, take it for what it is. But a lot of people don't do that. So we have these individuals on social media that speak with a lot of authority And people believe what they say because they have this presence and they have this confidence. And hey, all the power to them. Like, great. I'm really happy people (laughs) are confident. But it's also important to be educated, especially when you are working with people's bodies and health and performance. And that is something I take very, very, very seriously. As I think any strength conditioning coach, personal trainer, movement practitioner should. And unfortunately, there's a lot that don't. There's a lot that just want to be quote unquote, online coaches, and they don't ever work with individuals in real time. And I think that is also a red flag is when people are sitting on their high horse being like, here's the message. And they've never been in the trenches. They've never experienced different demographics. And they don't have the knowledge base. 
And I think it's also important for people to realize that, again, for some of these people, that is their job. That's that's what they do. And they need to keep that going. And unfortunately, on social media in these days with all the short form and attention, what they have to grab people's attention. And one way to do that is by being a little bit polarizing. So saying things, it, talking in absolutes, basically. So saying things like, if you want to get stronger, this is the way to do it, or this is the only way to do it. And that's, again, where we have to be really like, it's just like a, the GPS analogy where there's more than one way to get to the end, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and then one other thing I want to talk about is even when it's a credible source, I think it's also important for, be- for people to realize or, or for people to not take things out of context. So you'll see, you know, just take an Olympian or a pro football or pro athlete, whatever it is, and doing an exercise and then somebody coming up and saying, oh, he's doing that. That's what I need to be doing. And in reality, you're in two very different, one, probably stages of your career. And two, you have no idea what he did or she did to build up to that point. And I think that's when I think about sticking to the basics and then having those proper training progressions and explaining that so that one day that they can get to those places and understand why it is that we're doing something. So I think we could talk about now why it is so important to, one, learn the foundational movements and stick to the basics and how we can progress those and still be successful as athletes. Yeah, I, I mean, just going off what you said, context is so important, which I think social media lacks context. So it is hard to discern that. So, you know, I don't want anyone listening to feel bad if you think, oh my gosh, I totally bought into, you know, something that was shared. It happens. Even I sometimes am like, oh, but then I'll like see someone else say the opposite thing. I'm like, oh, this is confusing for even someone in the field. Yep. It's like a shiny object and then, oh. Yes. Exactly. So when it comes to, and I'll kind of keep this in line with the social media piece. So something I do is I post a lot of movements and I like to kind of cue them up and break them down. It's one of the things that I've been doing pretty much since I've had my social media account. And every once in a while, I actually reiterate the fact that I'm like, you've seen these exercises before. I'm still doing them years later. They're still challenging. You know, I want to reiterate the fact that like, if you do the simple things, do them well and do them often, that can do wonders. And sometimes people only do two of those things. So they do them really well and or they do the simple things and they do them really well, but they're not consistent with it, right? So that's an area that they can use to continue to improve. Or maybe they they do it often, but they don't do it very well. So it's like they're... I think sometimes people perhaps give themselves a little bit more credit of like, oh, I always do these things. But it's like, perhaps they get caught up in maybe some bad mechanics or bad movement habits or whatever it might be. But if we kind of look at, you know, strength and conditioning is still relatively young, I think in comparison to some other industries, there are certain movements that haven't gone out of style, right? That like, let's take a split squat as an example. Sure, there's a lot of like creative variations. I saw one the other day, like a curtsy one loaded with a landmine kind of on the shoulder. Like, of course, there are like, quote unquote, fancier alternatives or variations. But the split squat itself is still heavily programmed and very frequent in a lot of sound programs because it's incredible for building lower body strength, um, especially with a unilateral or single leg position. We're building resilience around the ankle, knee, and hip. Like That hasn't gone out of style. There's a reason that split squats still work. And I think where I get frustrated in the field is when everything has to be new and everything has to be, like you said, that shiny object. And I think we get away from focusing on the simple things and doing them really well and repeating it and being consistent with it over time. So there are certain movements that help build the foundation for you to be able to do all these different variations and be able to move your body out of perfect position. Essentially, that's our job, right? We train in a very controlled environment. We're looking at mechanics and technique and we're making sure everything is as close to perfect as it can be in this controlled environment. But what we're doing is we're strengthening people to be strong out of perfect alignment and in random positions when you're on the field or on the court, you know, and you're falling and maybe, you know, you're trying to dive to get a ball. So then you're sideways, but still trying to accelerate forward. Like that's our role. So I just think the basics have always been the basics and always will be the basics. And I just think in our world, everyone's going for that like next best thing. And it's cool when you can get there. And it's also important to keep the foundation in mind. Yeah. And I think it's also important for people to understand or athletes to understand that, you know, our body adapts not to the 
you know, a split squat versus a reverse lunge or this lunge or anything. It's the the actual stimulus. So our body doesn't know that we're doing, you know, a split squat versus a reverse lunge. It just knows that our knee is extending, our hips are extending. We're, you know, so the actual adaptation, I have this conversation a lot with my athletes, is the adaptation is more so from what load are we using? How many reps are we doing? All those sorts of things. Are we training for you know, quote unquote power, strength, endurance, all that. That's where the adaptation comes from. With the exercise, we're just looking at, all right, what muscles and movement patterns do we want to have the adaptation happen to? And with that, I remember saying in, in one of my clinics once, like the human body is so smart. You could do the same eight exercises for 12 months and just change the volume and totally change how the body adapts to it. No one does that because no one really enjoys being that consistent with things, yeah. but it is possible. And there are people that do that. They they stick with very, very similar exercises for a very long period of time, but there's fluctuations in different variables of progressive overload. And they're, mm-hmm. to- they're able to change the stimulus applied to the body in pretty extensive ways by not changing that much. And also just trying our best one. Like you said, consistency is one of the most important things if you want to have good results and actually make progress. And one thing I have to get people to understand is, you know, in a program, yeah, we're not just going to randomly switch from one week to the other. There is a difference between exercising and training and not to say exercising is bad. Exercising is very good. But if we really want to, you know, if we have certain goals that we want to hit and as athletes, we do have those goals then we really need to be training and not just exercising. So, you know, for instance, I don't just want to make you like anybody can make anybody sweat or work hard. That is not, you know, a good indicator of, or, or sore. And that's, those aren't good indicators of a proper training program. And going into that, is there anything, and that's one misconception is that, you know, you have to be sore for it to be effective. Is there any other misconceptions that off the top of your head that you think of that you hear? I mean, maybe you can dispel for anybody. I think the sweating one is one as well. Someone's like, oh, I didn't sweat. Yeah. I'm like, well, when you have like three minute rest periods, because we're working on like pure yeah. strength, like, <laughs> yeah, you might, you might cool, like your body temperature might come down a little bit, or like maybe the gym isn't that hot. Like, so I think this, the sweat one, the soreness is another one. And I mean, these are, these are pieces that I try to educate on and, and going off of what mm-hmm. you said about training versus exercising. I always like to say it's hard to achieve a specific result when you're training in a random way. So there's a lot of people yeah, that perfect. like, enjoy going to like group classes and there, there's nothing wrong with that. Hey, anything that gets people moving more, I think is we're yep. better off in society because of that. That being said, when people expect specific results, but they're doing things at random, like so that doesn't match up, right? There's a disconnect there. So I think, you know, when people are like, I've been coming to these boot camp classes for the past year. And sure, there's going to be things that I'm sure they've achieved results in. But I'm trying to get this pull up, and it's like in the programming there are no pull ups. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> sorry, but happen. like you're not going to be able to pull yourself up if you don't <laughs> practice it. And I think another misconception is people repeating the same training session over and over again. Like sometimes people are like, oh, I'm just going to get used to it, and then like, th- what's the use in it? But it's like that's well, that's essentially what we're trying to do. We're trying to get used to this stimulus in this phase. And then we're going to adjust things to then challenge your body again. But that can't happen in such a short period of time. Like we need to give our bodies respect that it's smart, but like doesn't necessarily work super fast. So we also want to be patient with it as we progress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So now diving more a little deeper into the programming side of things. So let's just take it's a hypothetical athlete. For lack of a bit, we can call them a hockey player, ice hockey player, very low training age, you know, zero to one years, uh, high school athlete. What are some of the things you're thinking about diving before you even start looking at the program? And then we can dive into some of the things that might go into this program or her program and why? Yeah. So my first step is always a needs analysis. And a needs analysis incorporates a couple different things. I personally really like having some sort of face to face connection with the athlete, especially if this hypothetical athlete is an individual could be a phone call, a Zoom call, an in-person conversation. I think being mindful and intentional with taking time to connect with the individual is very helpful long-term in having them adhere to that plan. That's something I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So as part of this needs analysis, it could be a conversation. So doing a little bit of an intake and a quote-unquote consultation process and gathering specific information. 
So this could be logistics, like how many times a week will you be training? You know, what does your season look like? So trying to help you kind of get a big picture view of, of what they're looking to do over, you know, however, however much time you have with them. Needs analysis, especially when working with athletes, is also some of my own research. So part of the information I gather from the individual, and that helps provide more context. It helps give me a starting point. I'll also do some sort of assessments and, you know, movement screening with them so I could gather then more information. What I will say on that is sometimes, you know, athletes will come in and say, Oh, I've been training for years, but then having the assessment allows you to actually see if they have good mechanics or, you know, where their actual training age is in comparison to what yeah, they tell you. Because like, let's be real. Sometimes ego is involved. So there's going to be like, you know, some boosting of maybe where they're at. So I think having a combination of like that conversation, the intake process, the movement screen, and then the final piece would be doing my own research. So understanding the sport that they're playing, the level they're playing at, their schedule. So that's not necessarily information I'd gather from them. That might be information I seek on my own from credible sources. So if I'm working with a new sport, like if I had a cricket athlete come to me, I would have to do my research. And that's part of my role. So I would, you know, watch film, I would read articles, I would tap into my network. So I think the needs analysis is just an umbrella term for data collection in a variety of different ways. I like to have a variety of different ways because I think it will give you a more holistic perspective of the individual that you're then going to be programming hmm. for. Are there any specific... So once you have the needs analysis, do you go straight into that training session or are there any specific tests you might do with them? Anything prerequisite that you want to check before you get into that? Yeah. So especially with my hockey athletes, I do like to do a little testing battery. What I will say is I am a solo entrepreneur and I have to be mindful of what I spend my money on. And right now with the sports science side of things and the tech side of things, it's not super accessible for an individual yeah. like myself to have. So I have created a testing battery of things like, you know, again, depending on what their teams are looking for, all the information that you're going to acquire during yeah. that needs analysis. But I like to have a couple different tests that we can do and monitor over the course of, let's say, our off-season or over the course of time that I have them. So we're probably going to have some speed work, some uh, you know strength work, some power work, uh, different things that, again, we can replicate several times and it's easy to facilitate them. Um, and we have all the equipment needed for them. And in, so... I like to keep things simple in that regard. I don't have any mm -hmm. fancy force plates. I don't have any crazy tech. So I try to keep things super simple and something that we can repeat over the course of my time with them. My next step would be to actually do a bit of a YTP or a yearly training plan. I, I think there's a lot of different ways to be successful with this. I was chatting with another coach about this and I think if you were to Google YTP, you have these like crazy like blocks and intricate, you know. yeah. And and what hey, type of periodization are you using in, this? Yeah. Yes, and it's super cool. Like some of them, I really like how they're mm -hmm. laid out. For me, I feel like I I am visual, but I also want an area where I can like write notes on the specific individual. So I do do a YTP, and sometimes it's like if I'm with this athlete for four months of the off season, like. That, that's kind of what I'm focused on, but then also seeing how that four months is going to play into the rest of the year. I think it's really important to zoom out for a second and have a big picture view of things and how you want things to progress over time. I will say, I had this question asked to me in a clinic before. Someone was like, you know, so what percentage would you say this like YTP like goes through. And I'm like, yeah. probably less than 1% of the time does it ever look exactly the way you plan it out. Yeah. The yeah. point <laughs> is, you're looking ahead and you're looking at what you're doing now and how that contributes to the bigger picture. So sometimes I like to kind of go big picture to little picture in different situations, in different contexts. Maybe you have someone that they're like, I'm going to do a week of training with you and then see what happens. Well, it's like, what can we do now that could contribute to a bigger picture down the road? So I would go kind of needs analysis and in there would be that testing battery to get some like real time data collection and then kind of map out, okay, like what does the big picture plan look like? And then that's when we go a little bit more micro and then we kind of break things down into those. Well, we have the macro cycle, the meso cycles, the micro cycles. Like I actually use that 
and and we start big and, and we go a little bit smaller. Yeah, and I think it's super important for people to realize, obviously, especially with when training youth athletes, it's important to have an overarching plan. You know, we want to know where they're at now and where we want to get them to. But like you said, almost zero percent of the time does that plan go through without a flaw. And so it's also important to be open with whether it's the athlete, the parent, whoever it is, they're like, look, this is the plan. This is not set in stone. It's, you know, some people call it fluid programming or anything like that, because it it could depend on so many things. If an athlete comes in and you can just tell that they're, you know, super fatigued, super sore, they've done X amount of activities over the weekend. The best thing for them that day is probably not going to be to lift the exact uh, session that we had planned. Um, So being able to modify that, or even in the setting where I am in like a school setting for any of my athletes that I work with, there's planned regression weeks because they go on vacation, they do other things. So I don't have to have like in my, you know, I program in four weeks just because that's how it works out for me as well. But I don't have to have, you know, a deload week already programmed in because naturally that's just going to happen. But to dive more into now the more micro cycle of things. So now we're getting some more what just sessions and trainings and lifts actually look like. What are some of the boxes you're trying to tick with those athletes? So whether it's, you know, we want a power production movement, upper body, lower body, horizontal, vertical, all those sort of things. Yeah, I think just in being realistic, I think over the years, you know, I tried kind of like block periodization and all these different things, like focus on one specific thing at a time. But never in a sport are you only focused on one component, like one component, right? So I like, I think it's referred to concurrent or, you know, when there's like, you know, speed, power, strength, all in one. From my experience, that served me and the athletes I work with quite well because it is representative of the sport that they participate in. And it's also representative of life. So the way I kind of like to go about things is I'm just very cognizant of the sequence of events in a training program. So if we're looking super micro at a specific training day, I want to make sure that the gas tank is the most full for the exercises that are going to be the most taxing. So a lot of times that's going to be our speed work, our power work. So we want that early on after warm up. The body is prepared. They're ready to go. The nervous system is firing. They're fresh. They could produce like maximal output, lots of rest. And then we transition into, you know, more of the strength work. Then we're working on our big movements, the ones that are multi joint movements that are using major muscle groups, lots of rest time again, depending on, you know, what we're, if we're looking for, mm-hmm. you know, pure strength, we're, we're taking lots of rest in between and then moving into some of those more isolated or accessory movement block. I do think those are very important. They're going to help contribute to those bigger lifts, but also be able to focus more on things suited to that individual. So I think when it comes to the like personalization and quote unquote individualization of programming, I find that I use the accessory block as the time to be like, oh, this individual needs a little bit more single arm horizontal pulling work. We're going to add a single arm supported row in this. Like that's where the individualization comes in. It's not like, oh, this person can do a backflip. They're going to do a backflip into a Burpee, like it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, such a random example, but you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I think it's sometimes we get so caught up in you know what exercises we're doing or what we're trying to achieve with certain things. And yeah, it is almost like that eighty twenty rule where eighty percent of what we do is probably going to look very similar from athlete to athlete. And then it's that 20% where we can, whether it's based on what sport they play, previous injury history, certain things, whether they need to work on mobility, anything like that, that's where we kind of play around a little bit and have a little bit of uh, fluidity in our structure. But for the most part, you know, those that 80%, we're going to, we're going to squat, we're going to hinge, we're going to push, we're going to pull, all those things are going to be taken into account. And we're going to look at how we can progress them and, and what's appropriate for that athlete. Could you go in and this is obviously we're centering around athletes, but on Honestly, this could be uh, pertinent to anybody that just wants to go into the gym and work out. And you touched a little bit on the structure, but for somebody that just wants to create their own workout, very simple, very basic, could you talk about the importance of why we do major, you know, compound lifts first and then move to uh, single joints? Uh, Why we do maybe if we're conditioning, we'll maybe do that at the end or where we put it. Could you just talk a little bit on that? So somebody who wants to go into the gym and have a little idea of what they're doing doesn't start with doing bicep curls. Yeah. So I mentioned like the sequence of events. And this is something that I've had some people say, Oh, does it matter what order I do things in? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. It is like, 
it is structured in a very, very strategic way. Yeah. And actually, you know, I'll bring up the example of my mom. My mom is turning 72 and she's been very diligent with her strength training for about a year and a half and will ask me questions like this. And the way I structure her sessions versus the way I structure an athlete sessions aren't all that different because the sequence of events is where it is for a reason. So I use the gas tank analogy. So I have an athlete or an individual walking through the door at the gym. Their gas tank is full. They've slept well. They've ate well. They're hydrated. They're ready to go. The gas tank is full. They're going to start with their warm-up. That to me is a non-negotiable. You always want to do something to prepare the body for what's to come. So you're only going to deplete a little bit of the gas tank in a warm-up, right? It's not going to be like super exhausting. It's just getting the blood flowing. We're getting the body's core temperature up. We're getting the joints through a full range of motion, et cetera, et cetera. Movements like power or explosive movements utilize a lot of energy. So in order for those to be done to the best of your ability, it's important that you have them placed at the beginning post warm-up when your gas tank is nice and full. And I'm, of course, making this on the screen. I don't know if anyone will ever see this, but yeah. but th- that's going to deplete a lot of energy. So you want to ensure you're doing those things when you have lots of gas in the tank versus doing something like a hang clean at the end of the workout when you only have you know a little bit left in the tank. That's probably going to do more harm than good on your body. Yeah. So in it, the same thing goes for your strength work. So maybe you're not working on speed or power. That's okay. Maybe you're doing some skill stuff at the end of a warm up. Again, you want to focus on the exercises and movements and drills in the training session that are going to utilize the most energy. When a movement is using multiple joints and using big muscle groups in the body, that's going to utilize quite a bit of energy. So that's why our goblet squat would go before our bicep curls because there's a lot more happening in a goblet squat in the body versus the bicep curl. So the order of things is very, very intentional and very, very strategic. And of course, there's a time and place for different things. Like I sometimes use the example of pull-ups. So pull-ups, I do think are a major movement, a major pulling movement. Mm -hmm. Sometimes... I want to put them closer to the end of a workout so someone can practice doing them under a little bit of fatigue. And I might also program it at the beginning of the workout so they could also practice doing them when they're fresh and when they haven't done a bunch of other pulling exercises. So Mm -hmm. there are some caveats to that. But for the most part, I just want you to think of that gas tank. It's like, what are the movements that are going to be most depleting? What's going to utilize the most in the body? and put those at the beginning before things that you could do with a little less energy. Yeah, exactly. And speaking now strictly to a high school or collegiate athlete, how do you approach free weight versus machines if you use either whatever your methodology is? Yeah, so to be honest, I use very little machines. I think because the position I'm in now, I work with a lot of different individuals that have access to a lot of different things. But I think the common thread at most gyms are dumbbells. Most of them are going to, you know, you're going to have access to dumbbells and kettlebells. I also think it's really beneficial, especially for someone at the younger training age to have their joints and their limbs work independently versus a barbell or a fixed machine that kind of does the movement for you, or I should say for that for the machines. But a barbell, it's like you're distributing the weight across, you know, both shoulders or both hands or whatever it might be. So sometimes people can get away with it if they're shifting to their stronger side versus I do think dumbbells and kettlebells might hold you more accountable to having like actually working on your left side and actually working on your right side. And so in like a general prep phase, like especially for a foundational phase, I focus a lot on dumbbell and kettlebell work. Again, context depending and depending on what they have access to and then progress into using a barbell. So as an example, we might start with a dumbbell goblet squat and then down the road progress into a barbell front squat. First of all, I want them to have kind of a prerequisite strength because the barbell is 45 pounds by itself. So I need to ensure that they can handle that load by itself. But what the barbell will allow is it will allow them to utilize more force or more weight without having to like hold it in a goblet hold, right? Yeah. Like yeah, getting exactly. the Eventually you get to a point where we need to move on. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. But I think a lot of people jump the gun and go like right to the barbell without giving themselves the opportunity to kind of build that foundation of strength before progressing into a piece of equipment like the barbell. And that's also where you see sometimes 
technique will go out the window because you're just not ready for that yet. It, you know, a barbell, most barbells, obviously there's different types, but you know, a standard barbell is going to be 45 pounds. If you can't goblet squat with at least 45 pounds, we're probably not ready to move on to a barbell front squat. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I just had this conversation with a parent the other day because they're like, oh, my son doesn't really understand how to use any of the equipment in the gym and meaning more of the machines and stuff. But to add on to your point is one thing, especially with youth athletes that we're also looking to do is give them that body and spatial awareness and have everything kind of connected. So if we're doing a squat or a lunge or anything like that, they have to feel their body in space. Even with, I teach a lot of my athletes to Olympic lift, whether it's a snatch or clean. And yes, there's benefits to that that I won't get into as far as power development and all that, but also just them learning how to coordinate a fairly technical movement is so important, especially as them just transferring to the rest of obviously their athletic world, but just their life in general and how they move and, and all that stuff. So that's why I'm so adamant about doing that stuff. And sometimes what I do, this just reminded me of something is sometimes what I do is let's say in my power block. So let's say early on, I do want to start to teach them to develop force in some way. So maybe it's a tall kneeling med ball slam, something that's kind of like low hanging fruit. It's not, you know, super complex. We could do it in a really safe and effective way. But sometimes I pair that with a skill. So it's like as a bit of active recovery, maybe they're starting some of those building block drills to help them eventually down the road progress to a snatch or a clean, something that is quite complex. So it's like they have an opportunity to practice being forceful in some way. And they also have the opportunity to like lay the foundation to learn a skill that might not come for a couple phases, but they at least can start to get some of that, like you said, coordination down. So you can kind of add on to it each phase without having to be like, okay, phase one, day one. We're doing a clean. And the kids are like, oh my gosh, this is wild. What's going on? It's like, (laughs) we could take some baby steps. So it's like, there's ways to still, you know, maybe we're also working on deceleration. We're adding some, you know, low grade plyometrics, things that aren't going to be, you know, crazy coordinated that they can kind of catch on pretty quick and pairing it with a skill that they can develop over time. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So I just have one last question regarding training and then one last one to finish out. As far as the training goes, what are your opinions and thoughts or how do you approach quote unquote core training? So for those that just to clarify things, we're talking about abdominal, but also, you know, obliques, uh, on your back, your QL, all those sorts of things. So I am so basic when it comes to quote unquote core training, because I think a lot of our foundational movements, if you learn how to breathe and you learn how to brace and you're doing these big movements properly, your core is getting a lot of work during those things. That being said, I do like to think about having people work in different planes of motion and have them moving in different ways. So I love to incorporate some rotational work, some anti-rotation work. So like a pal-off press, having them like, you know, keep their, keep stable as they kind of press the the cable away and, and pull it back. But I keep the core stuff very, very simple. And I do a little bit of it in warm up to kind of get it prepped for what's to come. Or sometimes I add it to an accessory block at the end. But Honestly, I think anyone listening to this that has followed one of my programs, like you're going to see dead bugs, you're going to see a cable rotation, you're going to see a bear crawl. Like I'm so basic. I feel like I have six things that I love, like a Copenhagen side plank. Like I really don't try to reinvent the wheel with that because I also want to educate people on the fact that when we learn how to breathe and when we learn how to brace in bigger movements, your core is working. It's always working. So you don't necessarily need to do a ton of crunches. There are other things that we can incorporate. Something like a farmer carry, I think is excellent because it's also going to hit grip strength and it's, it's going to hit so many different things that I, I just feel like there's better use of our time and better use of the program if we like incorporate it into something that they're already doing. And then I always like to tell my athletes, what really is, you know, the the job, the functionality of the core. And it's really just stability and, and posture and allowing that, uh, what's the saying, proximal stability and distal mobility. So allowing us to transfer energy well when we're doing other things. And I only ask that because there are a lot of 
people that come and one of the things they always want to work on is like, oh, I want a stronger core. I want a stronger core. And that 100% through good training, I think will happen. Like you said, whether you're holding a 50 pound dumbo in, in front of you or do, there's so many ways. And if you know how to breathe and brace properly, those are the things that are really going to be our big buckets. That's the 80%. And then, you know, it's just subjectively what whatever client it is, what we may need to do with them. But yes. So last question for you. Is there anything, any piece of advice that you would give to yourself as a younger athlete and obviously more in the strength and conditioning realm of things, but could open up to anything? Oh, I should have prepared for this one. This is a good (laughs) one. You know what? I'm going to say this is going to sound so simple and I'll provide some context, but it's worth it. Yeah. There were a lot of days, a lot of early mornings, a lot of times where my teammates weren't doing anything, but I was waking up early to train and, you know, run stairs and do sprints and lift and shoot and do all of these things. And sometimes I would question like, is this even worth it? Like no one else on my team is doing this or like I'm taking this so seriously. But in looking back, it's like, it is worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Because not only is it worth it from like a physical standpoint, right? Being able to play a full game, being able to stay injury free, being able to to move well and be strong on your playing surface. It also just taught me so much discipline. Like I, I'm just the kind of person, I think I mentioned this earlier. I don't like when things are handed to me on a silver platter. I don't, which like is kind of a detriment because sometimes I'm like, I feel like I didn't earn it. I feel like I should work hard yeah. as an entrepreneur. But I, I think that stems from being an athlete that was never satisfied and always wanted to continue trying to get 1% better each day. And there are going to be times, I'm sure there's going to be some athletes listening to this. There are going to be times when you're like, is this even worth it? Like, does this even matter? Yes, it matters. And yes, it's worth it. Because when we train, we're micro dosing adversity, essentially, right? We're challenging our body in a new way. It's going to make facing adversity just a little bit easier. So it's worth it. Perfect. I think that's a great way to end it. Where can, if somebody wanted to keep up with you, follow along with you, Elena is a great coach, but also a great person. Where can they do that? (laughs) So it's pretty much training to excel at everything. So training to excel, training. And then the number two and the letters XL on Instagram. Uh, my website is trainingtoexcel.com. My email is Elena at trainingtoexcel.com. I always say I have a quote unquote open door policy. So I love having conversations with people. I love answering questions. I love just connecting with people. So if you have a question or you hear something that you want to dive a little bit deeper into, like please feel free to send me a message and I'm more than happy to connect. Awesome. This was fun. Thanks so much, Elena. This is so good. Thanks for having me.